Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Howdy, y'all. I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, El Wretches to our friends, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, we can't wait to say it because it's what the entire world is talking about, which is how good your hair looked in the fourth Republican presidential debate that you helped moderate. Hair game, 10 out of 10. A lot of time and effort and human beings. A lot of human labor went into that went into that hair. With the sheen of an otter's coat <laughs> and a deep luster. Oh, uh, my gosh. Uh, my dear Jessica was among a, a legion oh my gosh. of people who observed that your hair looked spectacular. Thank you. Um, That's the, the... Thank you. What was it? The Gary Shandling joke, which is no matter what, was going on, Gary Shandling would say, how's my hair? So you can, you can, we can answer in the affirmative, 10 out of 10. All credit to the, to the wonderful News Nation hair and makeup artists. I do that on the side too. That's also part of my work at News <laughs> okay. Nation. Okay. Shall we, shall we talk about the debate? Well, we should. We're coming to you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where we are. And I, the, what's the name of the restaurant here? What's the name of the bar? Do you remember? The Lookout. The Lookout. Yes. Christian is substituting for Colin. Christian's the road crew. And we're at The Lookout, which, and I say this with real love for the Hotel Indigo in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The Lookout is on a interstate overpass. So we are, we are looking out onto passing late morning traffic here in Tuscaloosa. And I don't know whether we just want to call this the front page Oh, the debates definitely. Okay. I mean, I'm sorry, keeping it real. It is Print my it. front page because it, it's been it's been our life for the past for the past week. All right, I'll, my takeaways were it was an entertaining and interesting debate, but it did not fundamentally change this race in any way. Well, before before we get to our punditry, okay, let me interview you. Okay, what was what what thing surprised you the most or did you was most unexpected to you in the process of making the debate the the thing that was most interesting to me in the process was that you know i'm not a television person and i had the opportunity to work on this debate with some television people mm. both elizabeth vargas and megan kelly are television people you and a couple of others who worked on this were television producers, and there's a different eye and just sort of sensibility about, in terms of asking questions, it, where the thought was not just is it a good question, but will people turn the channel? Will it be will it be interesting to people? And that's just not like my approach to formulating and asking questions. And so I think the combination of the two things ended up being really interesting. But it was like it was fascinating and informative for me to like have, you know, bird's eye view of that 
those sorts of conversations. So uh, what was the thing about the doing of the debate when you were up there with millions of Americans staring at you with their beady little eyes and those four weirdos up on stage? What was what what surprised you most about the actual thing? I don't think anything about the Doing of it was particularly surprising. The the process had equipped you. Uh, Yeah, the process, the process definitely had equipped me. And you're doing it in front of an audience, so it doesn't feel like a particularly television-y What was the most fun part of that? The most fun part was after an hour, like it was long enough that, you know, an hour in, I felt like, all right, like this thing is not going to be a disaster. We're not going to fail at this. And then for the next hour, I felt like I could enjoy the thing. Yes. And I like there was enough time for me to like get my sea legs and my feet under me and to feel be able to feel sort of relaxed. Up there. Sort of like being the host of a party. So much goes into it. it yes. To get ready and the guests start arriving and you're freaking out. And then after a while, you look around and you say, oh, it's working. But I We're didn't doing feel it. like it was like over before I knew it. I felt like I was able to sit there and take stock and enjoy it. And it was also interesting to to observe the candidates and their approach and to watch like, you know, Christy, he leans on his podium and he's really observing the yes. other three and really listening closely. The others like have a bear looking approach. for picnic baskets coming uh, into the park. Yes. Yeah. So watching them and how they went about the debate was also really interesting. We were sitting pretty close to them. Um, what did you least enjoy about any of it? What was what was the part that you that was the, the least enjoyable for you? I think uh, the least enjoyable part was like sort of vying for time, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. honest, like, you know, uh, when there's three people who are part of a production, everyone's trying to get their questions in. And like, I just don't enjoy that part of the, I like just, I want everything to feel good and be collegial. And, and so I just don't enjoy that part of it. Well, let me, let me tell America something about you. So it's a weird thing to do. You've been on television a lot in your career. You've also worked on television in your career behind the camera, but you were doing what I do in my work, which is a little bit behind, a little bit, and then a lot in front, right? So you were producing your own debate that you were appearing in. You were you were one of the producers in the room crafting these questions. And the hard part here is, as you say, it is a television show. And you have to remember the whole time, it's a television show. It's not an interview. And you, it, it, it needs it needs to do different things uh, than even a regular televised interview. Then there's this balancing test that goes on, which is, okay, it has to be a good television show, but it also has to be journalistically appropriate. It has to be it has to be good for the country. It has to be helpful to voters. It has to it has to meet the standard of journalism without turning into C-SPAN. No offense, C-SPAN, love you. There's a finding that test. And what I watched in you was somebody who came into this having never done it before, never been around it before. And you knew Megan, but you hadn't worked closely with Megan behind the camera. You'd gone on her show a bunch of times, but you didn't know her as a colleague. And I watched you come into a process. And basically, I remember the moment you came off the elevator in New York for the first (laughs) in-person meeting. And 
it was like, how's this going to go? Because as I have often said on this podcast, you are the meanest person who I like. Will you be tough and feisty and ferocious? Will you be cowed by this? Will you be overwhelmed by this? And you know what you did? You kept your ears open and you listened and you paid attention. And the places where you weren't sure about how to proceed, you figured it out. And watching, I, I knew it would happen, but the speed and alacrity with which you marshaled your journalistic gifts to do this process made me extraordinarily proud. And I've said it before and I will say it again. When you succeed at these things, it makes me feel good because it makes me feel like the world is getting to see something that I knew before. So it's like, it's like finding a great restaurant or a new TV show that you tell people about and then they love it and you say, see, I told you. So this is proof of concept for me of the wretch effect. Well, thank you. And I, I just will say the other really fun and gratifying part of all this was obviously we we've worked together, but getting to work with you and Bill Salmon. Well, you and, got to you got to you got to hang out. But with, to really work yeah. with you and Bill Salmon and Megan Kelly and Elizabeth Vargas and and essentially for me, all these people who have way more experience doing this than I do was was real privilege for me. Here's what the New York Times had to say about this debate. When Republican debates are moderated by conservative journalists, looking at you, Eliana Johnson, the questions tend to come from a place of empathy or outright chumminess. There was nothing chummy about Wednesday night. Most importantly, Megyn Kelly and the other moderators, the Washington Free Beacon's Eliana Johnson and News Nation's Elizabeth Vargas, confronted all of the candidates with a topic that many of them still prefer to avoid, Donald Trump. And our goal when we were putting this debate together was, and I don't talk smack on other people's debates and I don't talk smack on other people's election night coverage too much because it is hard, right? As you can attest, the amount of work and the millions of dollars and all of the time and all of the effort that goes into putting something like this on is extraordinary, and I want to acknowledge that whenever anybody does it. But the thing that is lacking in the American media very often are fair, hard questions, right? So you've heard me talk before about fake, tough questions. So fake, tough question is, aren't you really the worst? Aren't you really terrible? Account for yourself. You're the worst person in the world. Well, that's not really a tough question because the person just says, as Vivek Ramaswamy is very fond of doing, well, that's just you because you're bad, right? But if you ask a person from a place of, if not empathy, of like, okay, I understand where you're coming from. I'm, I'm granting you that you're a real human and that I'm going to take seriously what you say. Now we're going to test it. That's a much harder question to answer than just a phony adversarial question. And I think we we all of us wanted to come at this from a place where we're taking what they're saying and their ideas seriously and, and in many cases are sympathetic to them. Certainly I am. Yeah. And um, and that and by the way, that made it the it was hardest for you in that space because, you know, Megan obviously has points of view on things, but you're coming from a, you're representing a publication that definitely has a point of view. Right. There's, there's there's a point of view that the Washington Free Beacon has and you as edit, editor in chief are are championing. And so finding a way to do that and be journalistically not just creditable, but excellent it was really good. It was really, really good. And should we get into the substance of the debate, which I thought I thought was 
Yes. All right. Switch hats. Yes. Switch hats. Switch move, hats. Move to go, pundit hats. Go yes. So let's get some punditry. All right. Chris Christie, I thought. Dude's a beast. Look, I know, I know he's not going to be the nominee, but there was a moment when he, he went after Ron DeSantis a couple of times about not answering questions directly. Let's play one of those clips. The question was very direct. Is he fit to be president or isn't he? The rest of the speech is interesting, but completely non-responsive. And if we were in a courtroom, they'd strike the answer and say, Governor DeSantis. No, they wouldn't. Smart, they would say that. You're a smart they would man. Argue that the, no, they would. No, they wouldn't, They would Chris. strike the answer no, they because you're not answering you it. Is he fit? Like, you is have he your, fit? You have no. your thing. Is he you fit or isn't he? No, I don't have my thing. We don't, He's the thing. Is he fit or isn't he? We do not want to do You're talking about him being 80 years old. It doesn't mean that somebody is he fit? Chris, this reminded me of that moment in 2015 when he went after Rubio where he just was twisting the knife like it was an accurate and effective evisceration of what was happening on the stage. And I just thought he, he in many ways, he's just an extraordinarily talented communicator. And I thought he had a very, very good night. The other moment that was memorable to me was when I think I had asked Vivek Ramaswamy a question about attacking Nikki Haley, where, where he said, you know, I could have changed my name to Vicky, yeah. make Vivek Vicky. And he said, oh, I'm not attacking her her faith. I think she's, I'm attacking it, her authenticity. Right. And he held up yeah. a note card and said, she's corrupt. Nikki equals corrupt. And I said, Governor Haley, would you like to respond? And she said, no. No. It was, that was a, it was a real clutch move. So did you think, I've gotten both, I've gotten two different opinions. So I thought, to me, those were the two most memorable moments of the debate. Did you think that was effective for her to do or not? So it would have been more effective if she wouldn't have said anything else. If she would have only said, she should have just said no. No, I agree. And then just stop. But then she's, but, but that, and then she stopped herself. So it would have been more effective if she would have just said with, with a benign, not in anger, but in sorrow, no. Because she did that very well. She had a few of those lines in there. I thought Christie was very good. I thought his white knight on Nikki Haley was not good because especially when you have a woman on stage, the only woman on stage, don't you pick on my girlfriend. Uh, you know, you can't say that. And if I were Nikki Haley, I would have gently reproved Chris Christie after he said that. And I don't remember in the run of things whether there was a, a pause or whether she got a chance, but I would have said gently, Thank you, Chris. But I can fight my own battles. That would have been a, a a good moment for her. But obviously, it's it's hard to do in the in the scrum in the hurly burly. I thought Ron DeSantis had his best debate. You so what what did you think were his best moments? So there were the Ron DeSantis of his first run for governor in Florida was a sycophantic. Tell me what I need to say, and I'll say it. Person, and in 2018 in Florida. It was, I will go on Fox News and kiss Donald Trump's patootie around the clock. Once in office, we met a new Ron DeSantis, pugilistic, didn't care what anybody thought, kind of mean, right? Like kind of a hard, mean man, which matches the energy of a lot of the Republican Party, right? There's a lot of dudes in the Republican Party who are like, I'm sick of the woke and I'm sick of the whatever. So he adopted this tough guy, jaw set persona. 
in the primaries, in the primary process to this point, we went back to the old Ron DeSantis, right? Vague, evasive. Triangulating. Triangulating, upsucking, whatever. The old Ron DeSantis. Now, his his rictus, his body, his body language of the arms at his side and the face that looks like somebody shot his dog, not super, right? It's it's not it's not a super. But uh, he would never have a dog. Yeah, that's true. A, do- <laughs> a dog would be way too messy. But is his his obvious the the look on his face when Megan was asking him the question about basically the question was like, why are you so bad at this? Was was like, what's up, bro? And the look on his face of just like. He like he didn't know whether you didn't know whether he was going to puke or it whether was he was going to cry. So it's not that stuff's not great. But what is a good fit for the Republican electorate is, yeah, well, so what? What? He, so what? And he and, and we saw more of that DeSantis and he asserted himself more because after a year of wasting time trying to be an alternative to Trump, he's trying to be an alternative to Nikki Haley. And I think he, I think he got back to some some version that works. I I think Haley had a good first hour, and then I think she was flat in the second hour. You know what I think DeSantis's best moment was mm. was when Christie responded that I trust parents. Nobody love my, loves my kids more than I do. My husband actually had a funny. He text. You know, my family was texting during the night, and he. When I got off stage, there was a text from my husband. I love Chris Christie's kids more than Chris Christie. No, <laughs> um, I thought DeSantis when he said it is child abuse is not legal. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was his best he response had, of the night, yeah. and he got raucous applause. The, the, tra- the trans issue, very good. Uh, Ramaswamy, um, Chris Christie's fat says Ramas. You know, go go eat dinner, you fatty. Like just the. Um, I mean, it's Trump, but delivered with less charm and humor. I think the the thing for Ramaswamy is you I, you're probably not a professional wrestling aficionado. I was not. My my father would never take me to the wrestling down at the Wheeling Civic Center, but certainly the heel character where Ramaswamy is playing to the audience in the hall to get the booze, right? Like, yeah, boo me, boo me. I love your booze. I feed off your booze, man. So I'm going to insult everybody. I'm going to be whatever. I noticed, though, that Ramaswamy... So basically, the stage was divided correctly. You had the conservative old Republican Party on one side, and you had the MAGA nationalist Republican Party on the other side. There was like a little bromance going on between DeSantis and Vivek to team up and go after Haley. And then the other side of the stage... and, And Haley were teaming up to go after the other two. But it was interesting because I did see Chrissy and DeSantis chatting in the commercial break. And yes, and, after, and afterwards they yeah. they spoke. And it, it, I think I think DeSantis, obviously, you know, my favorite Ron DeSantis moment of the night. It was an answer to your question, your final question. Oh, that was fantastic. I hope, I hope. Chris, but I don't think, I, it was so funny, you know, chatting with Megan afterwards because, you know, she was like, oh, gosh, I, just, I don't want to hear these people talk about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Snooze, snooze, snooze. And so she was like, oh, my gosh. And they started going off about Silent Cal. We were just dying. Well, Bill Salmon, credit to Bill Salmon 
for having like and you and Bill worked on like we uh, went so many and and Bill was t- totally right. So we went through so many versions of that question, but I think we ended up in a great place. Well, I hope the any wretches watching or any dispatch subscribers or people who have followed my work know that when the word came to me, I was walking to the spin room when the question was asked as my phone blew up to say that Calvin Coolidge had made it into the debate. My favorite president. He knew what he was talking about. Oh, he certainly he did. absolutely knew what he was talking and about. And so the interesting thing. So here's DeSantis. And my, my sister texted, Ramaswamy told us how old Thomas Jefferson was like five times yeah, in the yeah, debate. Yeah. She was like, how old was Thomas Jefferson again? But DeSantis on the nationalist side of the stage, right, on the side of the stage that says the government ought to do more, that the government ought to be more interventionist, that was a real nod to traditional conservatives, right? That was a real nod to be like, if you're going to pick one person in the conservative firmament to say, this is my guy, Calvin Coolidge, who is famous for not doing radical inaction, right? Calvin, the story of Calvin Coolidge is principled, uh, principled inaction. radical inaction. No, I won't. No, I will not do it. And you want, I know why you want me to, and I know why it would be politically beneficial for me to do this, but I, I decline. That was a real, I, I was, anything that we can do to get more Calvin Coolidge into the American conversation, I'm, I'm for. So Ron DeSantis, my favorite answer from Ron DeSantis of the night. There's another 2024 piece that is not related directly to the debate, which is dictator on day one. I'm not going to be a dictator except for day one. Ah. There's been a big moment in the mainstream press about Donald Trump, the dictator. And you think that was intentional by Donald Trump? The Well, and Sean Hannity was like, tell him you're not going to be a dictator. Tell him you're not going to be a dictator. So maybe let's play the clip right here so you can hear Donald Trump promising to be only a one day dictator. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except Look, for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a that's, drill. That's not, no, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm going to be, I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, <laughs> we love this guy. He says, You're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, No, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. So that- this is Trump's genius, right? Exactly. Generating a rash of headlines, outrage wall-to-wall media coverage. So the Atlantic magazine, as the best case, as the most obvious case, they devoted basically a whole edition to Donald Trump authoritarian. And every major outlet has gone through in the past couple of weeks to say, hey, 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 Trump's serious. Take him seriously. He's going to be a dictator. This is what the second Trump term would be like. Were they were they gone for the first term? Well, and that was Ron DeSantis. It was. Yeah, I think, that, actually, that was quite a good answer, too. I think it was that was really strong. I think it was I think it was a good answer in terms of triangulating on Trump. But it was an attack on Trump. It was an attack on Trump. But it's 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 a way to not be either Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy. To someone like me, it was compelling. It was like this guy is not effective. Like you can agree with him, but he's actually not effective. It went back to what I thought was like the original DeSantis we're, we're getting sidelined, but like the original well, DeSantis proposition. It's the Jonah Goldberg uh, line. Yeah, he's not a good which Hitler. Is, which is, Donald Trump's not Hitler. Yeah. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's not, well, first, the motivation around the 
frenzy of coverage around dictatorship is a response to the 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 dawning realization that Joe Joe Biden could very well lose to Donald Trump. Right. So you have a few bad polls that say for Biden that say, oh, this guy's actually a couple points down to Trump. And then you get 10 polls in a row. Right. Where it's like Joe Biden's in real trouble. So I don't think I'm going to credit them and say that it's not like disingenuous. I think they really believe it. I think they really believe that Donald Trump would be a dictator. I don't think they're lying. I don't think they're just scaremongering. I think they think it's true. But the trigger obviously is Joe Biden is sucking wind. And this is this is we got to take we got to like raise the alarm bells for Democrats. So they set the alarm off. And then Sean Hannity is like, tell him you wouldn't be a dictator. And to your point, maestro media manipulator Donald Trump. By saying that he wouldn't be a dictator except on the first day, hits three notes clearly. First note, direct note is freak out the left and freak out the press. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? Oh my gosh, he's admitting it. Take him seriously. Believe him when he says it. Which, of course, elicits the response from the anti-anti-Trump right, which is like, oh, you guys are a bunch of weenies. He's not a dictator. And Ron DeSantis like, oh, he da 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 so you, so you get the anti-anti-Trump defense of Trump on this. And the third and key part, one of the key parts is, for people who want him to be a dictator, for QAnon lunatics and whatever, they're like, yes, he said it. He's saying it. We can believe him. And so the way that Donald Trump, in one sentence, takes control of the media narrative, makes heads explode on the left, forces Republicans who might not like him to defend him, and encourages the January 6th truthers and all the weirdos in the world. He did it all, and he did it all with one sentence. Can I make just up? this is apropos, apropos nothing, but a note about social media and how stupid it is. Please. This, this, if you're your thing about crazy conspiracy theories, this lunatic Laura Loomer, okay. there's a tweet. She sent a tweet that says, Hot Mike at the GOP debate just caught at Megyn Kelly saying we don't have seat fillers. And then Eliana Johnson saying, yes, we do. And then Kelly said, well, don't tell them that. And I think this was the moment when during the commercial break when Megyn said, don't go to the bathroom because it was, it was, you know, it was, it was like the, a joke. It was the run up before the debate where she was supposed to where we we were only talking to the people in the hall exactly where megan was just telling the folks like hey we're going to start here at the top of the hour be cool and and this is has thousands of retweets so um, what, what what's the conspiracy i have no idea that we have do we have that there were seat bots? fillers i have no idea i, I have no idea but it's like well so by the way have you had more interaction with the insane since this debate have you i'm not really i don't really do a lot of social media so i don't um me neither but sometimes they find you um sometimes they still find you. and i i the the few times that i've that i've done these things i just try to like block out the i i have a couple of public i have a couple of public facing email addresses and that's why i don't check them on the regular yeah i don't um so anyways, I saw this because I, you know, look at Twitter um, and this is like the only thing showing up in my feet. Okay. Um, all right. And last thing before we leave the debate. What did Duvek Ramaswamy say to you all when he and his family came up to the desk? Are you willing to are you willing to divulge what what he said? Oh, he said 
I'd love to chat with you at some point because I think some of my views are misunderstood by by you and your publication. And I said I'd be, <laughs> I'd be more than happy to to sit down with you. So look so when the to when it. the free beacon comes out with nine eleven as an inside job next week, we'll know we'll we'll know explain. that Vivek got to you. Colin explained exactly, but I look forward to it. And and he was you know he was gentlemanly. All of the candidates afterwards were. We're totally yes. gentlemanly and gentlewomanly. It's just, it, it, did you ever see the sheepdog cartoons, the old Warner Brothers sheepdog cartoons, Sam the Sheepdog and the Wolf? You yeah. ever see those? Yeah. So the whole thing is there. there's a time clock and the wolf and the sheepdog arrive in the meadow. They both punch in the time clock and then they go to work. And, when, and they're chasing each other and bashing each other with rocks and doing all this stuff. And then when the whistle blows for lunch, they take a break. They go sit under the tree, drink coffee, and smoke cigarettes. By the way, that was a better time in America when you could show a wolf smoking a cigarette in a cartoon. They do their thing, and then the whistle blows, and they go right back to beating each other over the head. That There's a little element yeah, of that yeah. in, in that stuff. Should we go to MSNBC canceling Mehdi Hassan's show? Yes. Do you know anything about this? You know, I had read the semaphore reporting in the run-up to this and uh, max tanny at semaphore reports that msnbc is canceling many the outspoken opinion host many hassan's weekend program and show on the streaming service peacock two people familiar with the move which msnbc privately announced to staff thursday morning told semaphore that hassan will become an on-camera analyst and fill-in host and the gossip in the run-up was that he was too controversial over Gaza and, you know, in Israel. I don't actually think that's why. In and this... and we, had t- we had talked about this before, that voices on the left. Yeah, made... they were critical of this. I, I don't think that's why, because the network, it says the network, the next sentence is, the network plans to expand host Ayman, Ayman Moyhel Dean's weekend programs to two hours. And he is... He shares Mehdi Hassan's views, essentially. I mean, he's not an opinion host, but so I don't I don't really think that's why they basically say it didn't rate. The, si- the silence. That's usually the, the, the silence. Was it did I see correctly, by the way, that White House interns had uh, sent a letter to President Biden protesting his support for Israel? Yeah. Yes. The 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 interns, the interns said that they this is not what they signed up for. And they're they're quite they're quite upset about it. And I thought. Staffers in worse in my well, I know there were interns too, and my thought was, wouldn't it be fun if you could say to the interns, "Well, I guess it's not a good fit for you, and please enjoy the rest of your time at Cal State and Fullerton." You know what? This isn't what I signed up for. for right, interns from interns. You're actually isn't what we signed up for. Right, your opinions as an intern, childish, exactly entitled children. That's well, a perfect transition to our facile file. Oh, do it. Notorious mobster stunned <laughs> by latest Hunter Biden allegations. Quote, mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Fox News. Sammy the Bull Gravano, for those of you who are under 100, was a Gambino crime family boss who I believe confessed to murdering 19 people, more than a dozen human beings that he confessed to killing, when he turned and snitched on the mob and was the key witness to put, what was his name, the Teflon Don, anyway, not important, that he he was this key witness. So a real, real bad person, like a, a person who didn't even have the honor among thieves' honor, right? So he's a, a cold-blooded killer, just the worst. Well, Jesse Waters at Fox News invited Sammy as his former peers called him, the rat Gravano, 
to come on his television show on Fox and offer his legal analysis of Hunter Biden's prosecution. And I know that Jesse Waters knows, and I know that people at Fox know, that no one should listen to Sammy the Bull Gravano give any moral lessons about anything. But the, the facileness here being, we're going to suspend disbelief around Sammy the Bull Gravano to let him opine on these things. And it was, it was a butte. It was a, it was a, a facileness seldom matched. Oh, Chris, this is like right in your facile erogenous zone. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> from the Atlantic, war in the Congo has kept the planet cooler. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, silver linings Silver linings. Sometimes, uh, sometimes there's butchery. The subhead. This uh, is like actually how the Beacon would parody the Atlantic. Subhead. The, the gri- ca- Beacon's case for, for left wing. I, I don't even know, but. The, the Grim Ironies of Climate Change, and this is by Ross Anderson. The Belgian Empire invaded the Congo rainforest in the late 19th century and swiftly established itself as the cruelest imperial force in Africa. I mean, certainly top tier for cruelest imperial forces. The, the Germans have an argument to make here. The Congo is the world's second largest rainforest behind the Amazon, and King Leopold II treated it like a personal loot box, goes on. Just so you know, the Atlantic is anti-colonialism. In, ca- in case you're wondering whether they're soft on Leopold II, it goes through and goes through and goes through about the amazing rainforests and all of these other things. And then it gets into how the bloody, awful violence in Congo has left it a stunted, oppressive place for human beings to live. But the good news is... It was once a paradise... That's right. Now, however. Now, however. Uh, bad for children, bad for human beings. But if you're a toucan, you're loving it, right? Big upsides for toucans. And I, I think the pieces like this are significant. So here's the, uh, to remember, here's the conclusion. For those who pay attention to climate change, the grim ironies are hard to miss. The United States, the world's most powerful country, professes to care about the planet's warming atmosphere but has also just become its largest exporter of natural gas. Abu Dhabi, a petrostate, is hosting the preeminent global climate meeting and talks being led by Sultan Ahmad Al-Jaber, CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Clearly, for the foreseeable future, humanity is going to keep burning the forests that were buried under the Earth's surface hundreds of millions of years ago and also the living ones that now cool its atmosphere. We have already dramatically shrunk the largest of them, except for one, and it may only be an outlier because of a terrible, terrible war. What about people, bro? What about people? So while Jesse Waters certainly is a contender for this week's most facile, we've got to give Ross Anderson at the Atlantic. He's got to get the title for saying, well, brutal civil war, hacking off people's limbs with machetes, bad, but toucans loving it. What do we have next? Probably more stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is an Eliana Johnson find. No more dry burgers. Oh, my God. We move on to the food section. No more dry burgers. McDonald's overhauls its biggest item. What say you? I loved the cheeseburger and didn't think it needed any tweaking, but I do look forward to doing a taste test of this with you. Unlike the McRib, I am a huge fan of the McDonald's cheeseburger. So I think the... My take on the McDonald's cheeseburger, my youngest man-child's, well, he sometimes goes for the double, but the two cheeseburgers is his one of his mainstays. I think the problem with the McDonald's cheeseburger is not how it is in its preferred form, 
but inconsistency, right? Depending on the McDonald's, are you at like a McDonald's attached to a gas station? Are you at a McDonald's that's off shift? Might you get one with a crusty bun? Might you get one with a little dried out hockey puck? I think 95% of the time they're excellent. And, but I look forward to trying this because I love a sauce. So, oh, they're putting a sauce on. Well, yeah, they're, it, they're going to make it. Uh, I love a good sauce, a good everything. Okay. The changes are now rolling out in the U.S. I agree. The burger's a little dry, but like I think they do great with the pickles, the onions. I love it all. Oh, so they're doing all of their burgers, not just the cheeseburger. Is this what I am to understand? Yeah, all the burgers. Okay. We're ready for it. I'm definitely, re- I'm definitely ready to eat a bag of mead from McDonald's. Okay. So look, the changes are now rolling out in the U.S., including on its Big Mac. The two all-beef patties are cooked in smaller batches for a more uniform sear. There's more special sauce. Oh. And I love that. The lettuce, cheese, and pickles have been rethought to be fresher and meltier. And the bun is now a buttery brioche with the sesame seeds more Ooh, randomly scattered for a homemade look. Though. I agree. I don't know about that. But, but I think it's going to be delicious. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, I lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Doesn't work as well with brioche. Okay, but what about... It's it's the villain in the story. What about what about their nemesis, Burger King? I like their burger too. I know you do. This is from this is from K O I N. Giant inflatable whopper goes rogue, rolls through Newburgh. An inflatable whopper. This is out of Portland, Oregon. An inflatable whopper the size of a single car garage went bowling through the streets of Newburgh earlier this month after breaking free of its ties at a local Burger King. Now, Burger King. You know, as I have said before, it can be good. It's very inconsistent, but the Whopper can be very delicious. But my, I include this here to say, local news, this is why I love you. This is what you do that other people are not going to do for America, which is to tell the people of Newburgh why there is a giant inflatable hamburger rolling down the streets. The video is excellent. 10 out of 10. What do we have next? I am, I'm actually trading messages with, with producer Colin about his imminent, imminent baby. How imminent? Well, the due date was was January 15th, but okay. it looks like they will be uh, delivering about a month early. Ooh. So we'll, we will report. Yeah, we'll, we'll have. report. Feel free. Uh, sorry, that's why I have a distracted look on my face. Feel free to submit to wretches at nebulouspodcast.com your suggestions for what Colin should name his child. Canoe. Canoe. Canoe would be a fabulous canoe. Chicola is yeah. Uh, t- I'm I'm for it. Rugby rug uh, uh, rugby canoe. Chicola, ten out of ten. I think that's great. Okay, now it's style section, and you're going to have to take this one. Okay. The Washington Post reporting that in the world of sexual fetishes, crossing the political aisle is a kink, and I think we need to show the art to the camera because this is a special situation. Can we get, are we getting this, Christian? Okay. Whoa. Um, Sorry, America. We have a donkey and an elephant in some kind of chain. They, they even put. And wait, note to readers. Yeah, do the editor's because note. Because of the sensitive, highly personal nature of sexual fetishes, several subjects use their stage names or fetish uh. site usernames to speak candidly about the subject. Uh. The Washington Post has independently verified all of uh. their identities. Hallie Lieberman uh, wrote this piece, and I'm just sorry that it exists. I just, I feel a deep sense of regret that this exists. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. 
where we break down the story. Oh, yeah. We can't get out of our heads. And mine was the appearances by three elite university presidents on Capitol Hill, the president of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT, to discuss the displays of anti-Semitism on their campuses. And they faced some tough questioning from House Republicans about, in particular, about whether calls for intifada and the elimination of the state of Israel that at some times, at some points veered into the intimidation and harassment of Jewish students, violated school policies, and all three essentially said they couldn't quite say. And you had a good question about this in the debate. We asked about it in the debate. So let's play the viral interaction between Representative Elise Stefanik and Harvard President Claudine Gay. Based upon your testimony, you understand that this call for intifada is to commit genocide against the Jewish people in Israel and globally, correct? I will say again, that type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you but not say here that it is against also, the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, does that speech not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? When you testify that you understand that is the def definition of intifada. And I think what was amazing to me about this, Chris, was that this hearing was, of course, designed to make headlines and it succeeded at that. But, you know, these these three presidents had to know they had to know exactly what questions they were going to face. And they were not prepared to answer them adequately. And they've gone into days of PR cleanup. The president of Penn had to issue a video. Statement. Yeah, after the governor of Pennsylvania. After the governor of the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania denounced her. The Biden administration came out and denounced these guys. And these guys are supposed to be some of the supposedly some of the smartest people in the country. Well, if you if you wanted the the encapsulation, the microcosm of what's wrong with intellectual America being out of touch, here are these people who are the product of a diversity focused, a, a ethnic diversity focused, gender inclusive, every box checked, everything right inside the hothouse that they, they should be. They, they check every box, they meet every demand of inside the academy of what criticism you might face. And the fact that it did not occur to any of these people what normal people are thinking about and talking about. So they clearly went- And no how normal people talk. They, they clearly went knowing what the questions would be and thought that they- Not had, very hard to predict. And they thought they had formulated what was the answer that would win them the most plaudits inside the academy. And it was just a great, a great moment about how our system of higher education is failing 
and why our system of higher education is failing is because the it's not just that they are aloof and removed from the ordinary concerns, but they are aloof and removed even within, right? There's a there's a hothouse inside you the have hothouse. Representative Elise Stefanik and the House Republican Conference and Democratic politicians yep. on one side. It shows just how far left and how radical universities are. Just a super niche, niche of a niche of a niche. And wow. You know, it's funny. My obsession is also higher educated related this week. New York Times, and this was flagged by an alert reader. Thank you. Stephanie Saul in the New York Times, in Florida's hot political climate, some faculty have had enough. Stephanie Saul writes, Governor Ron DeSantis had just taken office in 2019 when the University of Florida lured Neil H. Buchanan, a prominent economist and tax law scholar from George Washington University. Now, just four, four years after he started at the university, Dr. Buchanan has given up his tenured job and headed north to teach in Toronto. In a recent comment on a legal commentary website, he accused Florida of open hostility to professors and higher education more generally. You go on and it says, it's a basically she says, it's a whole thing, it's happening everywhere. The University of Florida said that its turnover rate is not unusual and re remains well below the 10.57% national average. Hiring, it says, has also outpaced departure. Departures Florida State University and the University of South Florida release similar figures. So that's the fact, right? That's the truth. But the but Saul and the Times basically say, well, they say that, and maybe that's true, but there's a deeper meaning underneath. And this is like there's a there's a brand of journalism, or there's a, there's a, a foible of journalists, which is just a basic human foible. I believe something is true. I feel like it's true. It feels true. This feels true. And I see it. I kind of see it. Do you know about the three green valises? No. Okay. One green valise at the train station is one green valise. Two green valise, green valises at the train station is just two green valises. But a third, and I forget whose construction this is, but a third green valise means it's a trend and green valises are now popular and important. And now we can write a whole piece about the style and fashionability of, of people taking green valises on the on the train. The trend story is, I hate often, I often hate you trend stories, but when you marry up the unsupported, unsubstantiated trend story with bias, right? So there is a, there's a bias here that aligns. A, I don't know what the writer's politics are. I don't know what Stephanie Saul's politics are, but if she was a left of center person, the argument, and you could easily, just as easily see this coming from somebody on the right about right of center professors being prosecute, persecuted and leaving, totally could happen. But when the facts say that it's not true, then you have to forget about the green valises and you have to say, okay, well, how many valises are there? And what are, if somebody says, actually, sales of green valises are down over the past five years and it's not actually happening and we can't really do this and it doesn't work, you know what you have to do? Give up. And you have to go write something else. Or you can stick with it. Ben Sass, president of the University of Florida, went on to X and went full sass. We hadn't seen the full sass on Twitter in some time. And he got back on and had a fun evening just lacerating the New York Times with statistics. I don't recommend that people tweet, but it was it was uh, you could you could see that Sass had some 
some kinks in his swing that he wanted to work out, hitting the speed bag on the New York Times. And it was interesting to read him marshal the facts, but sometimes you got to drop the valise, people. Chris, that brings us to my favorite portion of the show, our reader mail. Oh, yeah. And we have a letter from Scott Crockett, who writes... Thank you for the show. I look forward to it every week. As a man living in a house with six women, I especially enjoy Eliana's perspective on handbags and shoes. It provides me with relatable fodder at the dinner table. My question for you is related to how the media covers wars. It seems that the coverage coverage of the Ukrainian war is more about military tactics, while coverage of Israel is more about the human tragedy. I would love to hear your perspective on that. What say you, Chris? The coverage of wars is not about the war, it's about the American response to the war. So the coverage of the Ukraine war now, what's the coverage of the Ukraine war about now? Money. Funding. It's about the fight among Republicans and between Republicans and Democrats over U.S. funding for the war. It's not about the war. What is the the coverage of the Israel-Hamas war about? It's all what the U.S. should be telling Israel. But I think and anti-Semitism yeah. and the and the divisions that have been revealed, the very stuff that you were talking about with the Penn president and all that stuff. So the coverage that you see of the war is it the the telescope is turned around. The coverage that you see of the war is a reflection of what is happening in the United States politically, not the other way around, I think. And I think. I do understand, Scott, what you're getting at in that I think that there's more there's more of a desire to to through coverage to drive hostility to Israel by focusing on the human tragedy of the of the bombing of Gaza and all this stuff. And that's because of the politics of the reporters. Yeah. It's, all, so. it's, it's also true, though, that at the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we were getting lots of coverage of the human toll, right? We were getting lots of coverage about what life in Kiev was like. I remember still the Catholic mass being held in a subway station as the bombing was going on overhead, equating it to the Blitz and all that stuff. But that story got old, and the early successes of the Ukrainians uh, sort of took some of that out. Whereas because of press freedom in Israel, because it is a free country where the West can come and cover things, and because of the efforts of transparency from the Israeli Defense Forces, you can get lots of footage, you can get lots of pictures, you can get lots of stuff, and I think that's part of it too. And our final letter oh, yeah. is from Ruth Baim, or Beam right here in Tuscaloosa, and she writes... Hey, Chris and Eliana, I'm very excited about y'all coming to Tuscaloosa Hi, y'all. and hope all goes wonderfully with your visit here and with the production. I'm a longtime listener to your podcast. I may possibly have heard every episode. I'm also a member of the Dispatch podcast where I enjoy listening to Brother Starwalt and Jonah. Oh, Ruth. I heard you say someone recommended Nick in the Sticks. If you want something a little cleaner and closer to where you'll be, I would recommend De Palma's Chuck's Fish and the Avenue Pub. They're all downtown, all locally owned. Call me if you need other suggestions. Have a wonderful visit. I got uh, four out of, no, I got three, no, four out of five 
No, three out of four. I went to Nick's in the Sticks. I went to Chuck's Fish. We went to Chuck's Fish. And I went to the pub on the avenue. I went to Chuck's Fish twice. You went to two, well, it's, it's it is quite good. It was great. Chuck's Fish is definitely the place that you have your parents take you That's and your roommates. It was great. It's the place that you your parents take you and your English lit professor out to dinner when your grades are struggling. It was good. It would it it certainly met the standard. The, the pub on the avenue or the avenue pub was good. It was a good. What it was good. It was like bar food and it was good and it was fine. I did not get to De Palma's, but I got to tell you, Nick's Filet House, 10 out of 10. I did not try that. Nick's in the Sticks. Nate Moore and I went with David Drucker and Bill Salmon, and we tried one night, and it was closed on Monday, so we didn't get to go in. We went back the next night, and it was almost closing because we had been working so late getting the debate ready. And I love you, Nick's Filet House. Truly great the best value in a steak that you will ever likely experience massive sides the chicken gizzards oh baby chicken gizzard situation optimal there's about 10 things on the menu they're all excellent everybody loved what they had and it reminded me of mario's fishbowl in morgantown west virginia shout out and just great and you know one of my favorite things about it we were there at closing time the crowd and the ownership was ethnically diverse, right? You had black America, you had white America, you had rich America, you had poor America. You had a variety of people that all found this to be excellent, simple, good food. And I will care. I bought the, I, I loved it so much. I bought the t-shirt. I will definitely be back to Nick's and the sticks if ever, whenever I am in Tuscaloosa again. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice. But as always, please lead us by example. The Guardian, a BBC news anchor who accidentally who was accidentally captured giving the middle finger at the start of a program, apologized for a quote silly joke, meant for friends, but not a live broadcast. On Wednesday, Miriam Moshiri, one of BBC News's chief presenters was seen at the start of the BBC News Bulletin at noon with her middle finger and eyebrows raised. At the end of the program's recognizable countdown, she quickly lowered her hand and blanked her expression before quickly beginning to read out the headlines and Boris Johnson's appearance at the COVID inquiry in a serious and composed manner. Love it to Miriam, I say. Definitely could have been me on many, many occasions. So nothing but love for you, sister. And mine is a Hollywood oh Reporter boy. reported oh piece. The Golden Bachelor's not-so-golden pass. Secret girlfriends, a juiced-up resume, and the selling of a septuagenarian stud. The secret history of America's senior sweetheart, Jerry Turner. Let's just say... Yeah, you, you got us into this. Abstaining from dating. You got us uh, into this. After his wife died. We're going to need... We, we have to take a little longer on this obsession. The Golden Bachelor, we, I was first stunned to find out when you, when you introduced me to The Golden Bachelor, I was stunned to find out that this person had to undergo sexually, testes, tests STD for sexually testing. transmitted diseases. Yes. 
And I found... Well, I now said, you know why. I said, this is a dubious all, proposition. All dating he was doing. So is he a real dirtbag? No, it's just that he was... He did a lot of dating. I mean, his story was that he just couldn't date after his wife passed away, and he was finally getting back into the game, but... So who won the Golden Bachelor? I, don't, I haven't been watching. Oh, okay. Well, I haven't been watching. No spoilers, please. And that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, Email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced today by Christian. Christian, what's your last name? Christian Dogstrom. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.